There we go. Andrew live. Tyler, welcome to the show. No, it's here. Oh, lost you there for, can you hear me? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Technical issues already and we haven't even got started. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I may uh, compound the problem because I'm going to do this as well. And when I, I switch you're... over to, from the main speaker to this, sometimes it gets glitchy. So we'll see how it goes. Okay, no worries. But, uh, uh, why don't you just start out kind of telling people about yourself that haven't heard your name yet or read your book? Yeah, no, we can easily do that. So uh, Tyler Foley, I'm the author of The Power to Speak Naked, number one best-selling book, <laughs> The Power to Speak Naked. Um, I'm a, a father, a husband, a son, a performer, professional speaker, seeker of warm beaches, lover of fine chocolates, player <laughs> of Lego and drums. And uh, that's that's who I am. It's what I do. The jack of all trades. <laughs> uh, and master of none. Master of none. So I do want to, I want to get to the book because that right out the gate, the, the title of the book just grabbed my attention. And, <laughs> but before that, uh, we, I know we've kind of gone back and forth a little bit. Uh, the actor part, you started acting mm -hmm. when you're six years old. That is correct, sir. Correct. I uh, I got into theater when I was six, so that was the first time that I was ever on stage. Uh, started to get into film and television in my later teens. Moved to Vancouver, which is Hollywood North for us Canucks, <laughs> and uh, and made it a, a good living of it into my mid twenties. And at that point, I'd been acting professionally for twenty years, and. Uh, I did what all people do after a 20 year career and I retired from it for a while <laughs> and uh, film and television is kind of like the mob, you know, you, you, you just keep sucking you back in. So <laughs> my agent phoned me a few years ago and had asked if there, if I'd be interested in doing, um, you know, just going out for some auditions. And at this point in my life, it was a fun little hobby to get back into. So that's exactly what I did. So how did you at six years old? I mean, how did was that your family saying a part of the you know being on the stage, or was that just something that you want to do as a six year old try something new? Well, it 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 kind of happened really organically. So my first grade teacher Judy Nielsen um, put me in the show for like the school play, right and. She, I got to play Joseph, right? And and my best friend, Lisa, was Mary, which was interesting because her mother's name is actually Mary. <laughs> and that confused uh, six-year-old Lisa for a little bit. She couldn't be Mary because her mom was Mary. But I remember <laughs> laughing about that. And I, uh, I just enjoyed it. Like, I absolutely loved it. It was just so much fun. And then Mrs. Nielsen also had cast me in... They they did another little school play in the spring, and I, I got to be Peter Rabbit and learn the lines. And um, in between the Christmas play and the Easter play, uh, my father passed away. Uh, he died really suddenly in a single vehicle motor vehicle accident, and uh, he was an educator. He was a teacher. Most of the teachers in my elementary school knew him, although he taught at a different school. He was really prominent in the community, uh, president of the Act of 2030 club, you know, worked with a lot of organizations. He was just, he was really well 
known and, and loved within the community. So when he passed away, there was a lot of people who rallied around me and my family. And um, theater was just one of those things that I kind of took a shine to. And I don't know if it was Mrs. Nielsen's prompting or if it was mom looking for something to do or if it was just the universe kind of working itself out for me. But um, my uncle, who worked for the city of Calgary, um, took lunch over at the theater complex because it was right across the street very often because my my uncle is... is uh, preeminent bachelor he uh, he doesn't cook for himself it's dining out all the time <laughs> uh, when they invented doordash and uber eats and skip the dishes my uncle's life became complete because <laughs> then he didn't have to go out for his food um but he was he was in the main theater complex right across the street from city hall where he worked and overheard a casting director complaining literally her i think her words were how hard is it to find a small kid to play tiny tim <laughs> And he kind of leaned over. He says, well, how small of a kid? <laughs> because I'm fully grown. This is me in my complete adulthood. You know, I ate all my vegetables, had all my Wheaties, ate every bit of spinach I could, drank all the milk that I could consume. And uh, I'm 5'8 when I lie. <laughs> the best. That's, that's me on my tippy toes, 5'8", about 135, 140 pounds. Uh, so I'm, I've always been a wee, wee human and uh, at six years old i was probably about the size of a four-year-old so they he just he asked and and the casting director uh gave him her card and next thing i knew i was i was performing professionally on stage and like i said that that kicked off a 20-year career and and actually really at this point 36 years of performance and public speaking of some form or another and uh it's just it's it's just a really fun thing to do it's a joy during you know junior high high school i mean were you still doing the stage performing and then working as well and trying to balance oh, yeah. work and life yeah yeah no i was um uh going to a fine arts high school that actively encouraged you to be in the fine arts and performance. And it was uh, designed around alternative education anyways. So I remember my final quarter, and that's the other thing, we were on a quarter system, not on a semester system. Uh, so my final quarter, I ended up taking both my classes through correspondence. And this was the mid 90s. So, um, you know, everybody had a whole bunch of AOL minutes. <laughs> from right like you got 40 free minutes or 100 free minutes to dial up and i was on dial up too like the internet was new correspondence was still uh mailing in things and the internet was was really fancy like if you got to do your correspondence over internet whoa are you that is that a 52 baud modem like whoa or 56 because it was 56 anyway it would that like that's dating it not that, that was what my my correspondence was like but it was done so that i could um at that point uh actually travel out to vancouver because i was starting to audition more and more in vancouver because that's where all the film was and i was located in calgary which is on the other side of the rocky mountains and so yeah i i was barely in school but basically my last year actually because i had a spare in the third quarter and so with the copernicus system or the quarter system 
where most people are used to taking four or five classes for half a year and then another four or five classes for the next half a year. Uh, we took two classes for 10 weeks and then two classes for the next 10 weeks, two class, right? So you ended mm -hmm. up doing eight classes over the course of a year. If you got a spare, that was the whole morning because classes went from like 8.15 to noon and then 12.35 or 12.45 or whatever to 3.15. And, and then school is out. And for us in the fine arts program, if you were in the main stage program like I was, uh, you got a spare in the third quarter always because that was the performance time. Performances were always the mid of April, beginning to mid of April, end of March kind of thing. And so it was at the end of the third quarter. And so we always had a spare in the third quarter because performances would, you know, the call time was like four o'clock. So you'd go to school and then go to the theater, get dressed and into makeup and hair and all of that. And then the theater would curtain call was 630 curtain up was at seven. And then, um, you know, the performance would be an hour and a half to two and a half hours. Then you're getting out of makeup and all the rest of it. So you wouldn't even be done at the theater until 10 at earliest. And so you didn't have a whole bunch of exhausted teenagers who all like to sleep in anyway. <laughs> we just got the, the quarter as a spare. And so you didn't have to be at school until like 1230, which made it really quite nice. So at the school, I mean, is it strictly, well, did you kind of pick, so in your case, stage theater, or could you kind of dabble around with different things being a fine arts school, whether it was music or more, uh, I guess, uh, painting, drawing and such like that? Yeah. Yeah. You could do, and all kinds of things. So they had, um, music and you could, and different disciplines within the music too. So you could have choral for singing choir. Um, you could do, um, band composition so where you're actually composing works um and then they had all different kinds of media so you had um you know everything from woodworking to metallurgy and metal shop uh you had photography paint so uh, traditional art mediums painting pottery um acrylics like you could do uh, there was just so many different options in it it would that was honestly i look back on my education and i i can't believe the things that i got to do um given that it was still like it was actually a public school <laughs> like it wasn't a private school it wasn't some kind of you know i can't remember what they call them now the the specialty schools i mean it was it was basically it was the first of the specialty schools and i can't remember what they they call them now in my area but it was actually a, a public school that i i went to and it was um the school board that i was involved with the foothills school division it was kind of its rebellion against the government because the government was slashing a lot of funding for programming and they were like well that's fine but and, you know, the rationale, I believe, at the time in the early 90s was not everybody wants to do these things. So why are we putting all of this money into it? And the school board went, well, this is true. Yes, but there is a fraction of the 
of the population who do want to do these things. So if we made a school specifically to it, we just fund that school. And then we're, it's part of the funding. It just kind of goes in. We're still going to have the core curriculum. Um, and the, and the teachers who want to be involved with this, will will put them to that school. So we don't have to lay them off. And they, it was, it was their creative solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and bless them for doing it. Because like, for me, you know, when I'm every, at, 14, 15, 16, 17, don't really realize the impact of that further on. But now that I am a fully grown adult with a six-year-old daughter who I'm paying an obnoxious amount of money to go to a private school so that she can have the same opportunities that I had for free, um, I definitely appreciate what the Woodhouse School (laughs) Division did for me. So, excuse me, after that, uh, after high school, then did you jump right in, you know, full dive into the acting career or oh yeah yeah no that was yeah i like i said um my last quarter i was almost never at school well i didn't go to school for the last quarter um the last quarter was as i said correspondence and i'm pretty sure i spent the entire month of june in vancouver auditioning with the exception of i think the 24th or 25th of june when i came back for my graduation ceremony um and that was that that was my only time in the fourth quarter that I was actually back at school was to go to grad. And and then at that point, um I was kind of done with small town Alberta <laughs> and had seen the big city lights <laughs> and just didn't want to come back. Um and if for a, a myriad of reasons, Vancouver was just the place for me to be. And I ended up packing up, going out there, phoning my ex-girlfriend and saying, you know, this is way better than where you're at, stuck in Calgary, come and join me. And so she did. And then I phoned my best friend from high school. And I was like, dude, you are wasting your talent and your time and your energy. Come out here. And he did. Um, And he's still he's still in Vancouver to this day, married, three kids, acting. Uh, He's done a really good job. Uh, of making the most out of out of that opportunity too. I'm I'm really proud of of everything that Dave managed to accomplish and is accomplishing with his life. And I I went full at it for seven years um, from you know basically just about to turn eighteen until I was twenty five. Um, it was essentially the only job I had. I had a couple of you know one off contract projects where I would go and do some temp work. I remember working for the BC uh, court system as a temp each, I think like for uh, around a Christmas time once. And uh, I picked up uh, temp work, but just uh, another Christmas for Canada Post, just for some extra spending cash. Uh, but I was a full-time actor. That's what I did. That was my job. I wasn't like a waiter who also acted. You know, every actor's every actor's a waiter or a bartender or something. Yeah, um, I I was an actor. I that's what I did. I was in performance. I was doing film and television. That was my sole source of income. So I, I and I loved every minute of it. And I don't blame you for going to Vancouver. I've got to go there once. Oh, God, I don't even know how long ago it was. Now it's about knee high to a grasshopper, but yes. a beautiful city and. I remember seeing you there. You looked good. Yeah. (laughs) One of these days I got to get back, but so it's, it's a beautiful city and I, I just, it's got such a good vibe. 
uh, it's great weather for you know, a Canadian city, right. <laughs> you know, um, and well, I'm it's just in Canada South in Wisconsin, so it's not much yeah, better down yeah, here. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, in, in my sympathies, because um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm on the prairies too. Like I'm, you know, it's cold. It's cold. I, I at least get Chinooks, which are those nice little Pacific warm air fronts that come and and warm us, and then push all the really freezing Arctic air down your way. So my apologies <laughs> on behalf of uh, Southern Albertans to you and all Wisconsin's uh, because it's their frozen cheese heads at that point. Right. <laughs> Man, and when you talk, you, so you went full-time in the acting right away. I mean, in, I, you have one hell of a resume uh, looking over that and in, in, including, but not limited to uh, Freddie versus Jason uh, yeah. Based on how you described your stature, I'm assuming you didn't play Jason. Uh, no, <laughs> no. But I, I was um, on set a lot with uh, with all of those performers, um, and uh, I remember helping out with the stunt crew setting up some of the effect shots that were there. It's actually where I learned to tie knots. Of all the weird skills that you would ever pick up. Uh, being on the set of Freddy versus Jason, working with the stunt coordinator, having to tie off um, a guy line that was helping support. There was a scene where um, Freddy Krueger cuts off the uh, the caps of like propane cylinders, and they like shoot off towards uh, Jason, and um, they were all on on these thin wires that were guiding these things because they wouldn't have realistically launched on their own. <laughs> um, and, uh, but to hold that line down and hold this racking system, he had to tie it down with like um, just cord. And uh, I, re- I remember him saying, Hey, can you help me tie this down? I was like, sure. And looking at him blankly, like I'm not a boy scout. I didn't, I was an actor. I was a performer. I spent most of my time in the theater. I didn't learn no knots. And he, he was like, you just do this. And he, I don't know what the knot is called to this day. If it's a half hitch or I don't know what it is, but uh, he showed me how, you know, you can, you didn't need anything to tie off to. You could tie the rope back onto itself and, and just, and all, I loved working with those stunt guys just for that. Like the wealth of knowledge they had. I am, I am not a manly, manly outdoor guy. <laughs> so it was nice to have some of that little testosterone injection getting to work with the stunt guys. Hey, so, I mean, aside from Freddie vs. Jason, Door to Door, Carrie, the musical Ragtime, and a handful of TV series, yeah. why call it Why call it a day after 20, 20 years in the industry? Why the I got super jaded. Um, and really complacent with the craft too. I remember, um, I remember the moment I knew that I needed to step back and get away from performing. I was um, living in Vancouver and just about three hours inland, uh, east of Vancouver in the mountains, is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful city called Penticton. As right on the Okanagan Lake, in between two lakes, actually, it, it it literally is placed between Lake Okanagan and Lake Skaha. And there it's it's God's country. Like honestly, it's one of the most beautiful places I've been in 
the world. And I have traveled the world. I've, I've been on uh, five of the seven continents and I, I have, you know, seen probably 50 or 60 major cities within the world. And Penticton is one of the most beautiful places I've ever lived, stayed and had the privilege of, of being at. And so I was living there because that's the nice thing about being an actor, right? You can pretty much be anywhere as long as you're within about three hours of, of an audition. Cause you're going to get, especially back then, cause you're getting like a day or two's notice that, Hey, you have an audition and it was cheaper to live in Penticton than it was in Vancouver. It was prettier to live in Penticton than it was in Vancouver. And if I'm only working one or two days a week anyway, it doesn't really matter where I am. I just travel in for work and then come back and crash with friends. I had a small little crash pad that I rented and, and maintained so that when I was in town, I could do it. Um, but it, that was actually cheaper than, you know, having a, a, a regular place in Vancouver. And so I was having to commute back. I'd gone in for an audition uh, for Scary Movie 3, actually. It was Scary Movie 3. I'd had an audition and it was for just like, a, 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 a just a bit role like day player barely in fact the 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 scene didn't even have any lines the character didn't have any lines it was a, a numbered character like you know you're in for it when your character has a number in it i we i was auditioning for frat boy and there was frat boy one two three four and five and so, you know, regardless of which number you got, you were, you were doing the same audition. And because there were no lines, it was, they just had us come in and improv and they were bringing us in, in groups of five and they, they probably auditioned oh, 40 or 50 guys that day. And I remember thinking, ah, whatever we get it, we get it. We don't, we don't right? Like I already did scary movie one. What, you know, do I get to tack on three? Sure. Why not? And I improv well and have good chemistry and likable and all that stuff. And, and so I, you know, made an impression in the room and I started to drive home because typically they don't make a decision right away. Like you go, you audition two or three days later, you get a call that you've got a call back. Then you go in a day or two after that, do the call back. And then if you booked it, you booked it, whatever. But, um, if anybody knows kind of the storyline and history of the scary movie franchise, the Wayans brothers hit gold and Miramax loved them for it. But then if anybody knows the story of Miramax, they know that the men involved with Miramax liked to screw over a lot of their talent. And they basically took the IP from the Wayans brothers. And so the Wayans brothers got to do scary movie two, but then scary movie three, they were basically cut out of it. And um, there are rumors that they were trying, they were purposely trying to spend money. And so they literally added this scene. And I don't, I don't know this to be true. This is all rumor. Even having worked on the production, I don't know. This is stuff that I've had to learn from watching like TMZ, you know, <laughs> and, and, but having heard these rumors and knowing how the production was, I can go, Oh yeah, no, I'd buy that because when they cast us. So when you're an actor, there's um, different categories and that will dictate your pay level in a unionized production. So like an actor, if you're paid as an actor, that means you have fewer than eight lines and lines are literally that in a script. If you, if there's a carriage return, 
then it may be one sentence. But if the sentence is like 13 words and there's a carriage return, that's a second line in the script. So if you have yeah. eight lines or fewer, um, you're an actor. And you're expected to be able to say a couple of words or a couple of lines, and that's that. And that's the lowest that's the lowest rate. The next rate up from that is principal performer. So that's larger than, that's more than an actor would say, but you're not a lead in the show. You're not a recurring, um, you're not a guest star or any of that. So those are all the higher categories. Those are the people who get front build. So you've done enough that it was substantial, but it wasn't enough that you get your credits at the beginning of whatever you're watching and that are going to come at the end. Mm -hmm. And that category is slightly higher. When I booked this role, and I, I I challenge anybody listening to this right now, if you're in rules of the arena, like let's <laughs> let's talk about the rules of the arena here. Try to find me in Scary Movie Three. Just try. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what the scene is and see if you even see it. Um, I there is a newscast. So Scary Movie Three is uh, spoofing a lot of things. One of them is the. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan movie Signs. Mm -hmm. And so there's an alien that's walking around. And they go to a news report where they first started to see these alien sightings. And the alien walks past a couple of dogs. And then he walks past uh, a college party where some college kids are doing a, a keg stand. <laughs> and the alien's doing a keg stand. And then they, you see the next one. And the dogs are humping. And they go through like some different shots i'm in i'm in the college student right frat boy number one and the ironic thing is is frat boy number one is actually the fifth frat boy to show up on film because they <laughs> pan pass pan past the guys that are drinking and then to the two of us that are doing the keg stand with said alien and then the two of us puke and because i am the first one to puke and then the second one pukes somehow that made me frat boy number one now in explaining that to you anybody who sees this scene would think so you were an extra right <laughs> i was a glorified extra and an extra doesn't even get paid what an actor gets paid an extra is like a you know barely 100 bucks a day unionized it might might be 150 right and uh and here i was and this is how i know that they were trying to blow money not only me but every one of the frat boys one two three four and five got paid not at actor scale, but at a principal performer rate, and not just at principal performer rate, but at double principal. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, whatever the principal rate is times two. And because it was a movie, you're getting a buyout of 130% for five years, so they don't have to pay you royalties for the first five years. I laugh because that to this day, when I do get royalty checks, because it's definitely past five years now, I get royalty checks probably every quarter from Scary Movie. Um, <laughs> they're the largest checks that I get. <laughs> and you've seen my resume. You know all the stuff that yeah. I've done. And like, if you were to watch me in door to door, you'd be like, oh yeah, I know that guy. I know what he did. They use the clip from me in door to door when Dame Helen Mirren won her Golden Globe. <laughs> The clip that they played for the, you know, and Helen Mirren and door to door was me, William H. Macy and Dame Helen Mirren. Like, that's how and I didn't get paid a fifth for that is what I did for scary movie and you can't even see my face. So yeah, I would I would definitely believe that they were blowing through cash. The point of this story and I realized that I went on a bit of a tangent. No, that's there, fine. 
is when I got the call back for it, uh, my agent phoned me and I was at a, a town called Hope, BC. And I was just about to get on the Hope Princeton Highway or what's also known as the Crow's Nest Pass. And I was going to go through Manning Park. Now, Manning Park is a large, uh, I can't remember if it's a provincial park or if it's a federal park, but it's a, it's a designated land. There is, it's in the middle of the mountains and there is no cell reception. And there, at that time, there was no cell reception for a good hour out of your three-hour drive. And you didn't get cell reception until you got to Princeton, hence the whole Princeton Highway. And so I just got this call from my agent on my cell phone literally five minutes before Hope. <laughs> and, I, and she's like, you got a call back. And I'm like, oh, okay, when is it? She goes, they want to see you now. And I was like, oh, Carmela, I am like, I am just outside of Hope. Like, it's going to take me at least an hour and a half to flip around. Plus, at this point, it's the afternoon, so I'm going to hit the bridge traffic. And for anybody who's lived in the lower mainland of Vancouver, you know that the number one highway at five o'clock in the afternoon is a parking lot. It rivals LA. And I was like, I don't, I don't, can't even get to the North shore, which is where this callback was at Lionsgate studios. I can't even get there for like two hours. And she's like, it's fine. It's fine. They'll, they'll hold off. Just turn around and go. And I remember in my, in, in my head going, God, do I have to, <laughs> And I remember thinking, there are so many people who would die for the opportunity to be where I'm at. Not even just getting a callback, but just to audition, just to be able to say that they were auditioning for a film. And here I am, I've got a callback. They want to, they liked my audition. They want to see me again. They want to see me right now. Um, and mostly because they're trying to blow through money because it was an add-on thing and they're <laughs> going to film the scene like literally two days later. And I, I didn't want to do it. And at that point, I went, I did the audition, I booked it, I did the role. And that was kind of like the beginning of the end where I started letting people know I'm stepping away from this because obviously my heart is not in it. It had stopped being fun and it started being a job. And I didn't like the job. I didn't like the business. And... I was I was jaded and complacent, so I knew that I needed to step away, and that that's really what prompted it. Were, were people, friends, family, or your your agent saying no? Don't do it. You don't know what you're throwing away, or you're not going to be happy, or anything like that. Or were people? My agent supportive? was. Yeah, my agent was like, "Listen, cash cow, I do not want you stepping away from this business." Uh, no, my I had two incredible agents while I was in Vancouver. Three actually. Um, uh, my first agent, Cal James at Blackthorn Talent, um, ended up becoming a business partner of mine. I bought into Blackthorn, and I still am a silent partner. I guess it's not that silent now that I've set it out <laughs> on the ground. But I'm still a silent partner in the Blackthorn group and and support their endeavors uh, regularly. My next agent, um, Sylvie at City Talent, um, was my agent on and off for years and years and years and years. Um, I actually went back to her after I was with Carmela um, at... Uh, ETM. And uh, she was a fantastic agent, but she, um, she dealt with a little bit higher caliber talent than what I was like, when you were with ETM, you ceased to be a day player. And I was happy to be a day player. And um, she was pushing me to do more and bigger things. And I, I don't know that I 
was either ready or comfortable or willing or wanting to do that. And like I said, it was rated. I feel bad because I'm sure I could have done a lot more with uh, Carmela. And um, I, I don't think that relationship was a fair relationship for her uh, from just my perspective. But And Sylvie and I got along. Um, she's basically like a surrogate mom to me. I still talk to her, even though she doesn't represent me anymore. Um, and so that like all of those ones were well established, but Sylvie did reach she, and she reaches out to me like every once in a while, like film really picked up about three or four years ago in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, when I left the industry had just peaked about a billion dollars uh, as far as investment annually in, in business. And, and it got up to about 2 billion and then it slid. There was a real decline um, about 2010 to 2012, 13. And then it started picking up again and it really picked up. I think they topped $5 billion this year. Jesus. And, and <laughs> a lot of that to do with, you know, it's a little bit safer place to film than other locations around North America. And, um, and she will, she'll always phone. She'd be like, and she's amazing. Cause she's Hungarian. So she has the world's greatest accent. She goes, <laughs> uh, hello, number one son. That's what she called me. Hello, number one son. Um, you know, there are these um there's lots of work out here for you if you want to come. I'm like, yeah, Sylvia, I would love to, but I've got a family. Uh, but she represents my daughter. So when uh Kenzie does stuff, because she specializes in in child actors. Mm-hmm. So when my daughter uh is prone to it, she's she she goes off and on like right now she doesn't like auditioning because she doesn't like she it's not fun because you have to self-tape everything and she likes the audition process like going to the room and meeting the other kids and learning the lines and getting dressed up mm-hmm. um and and meeting other people like reading with the casting director and the reader and right now auditioning is her and daddy in the basement and like this is her play area when i'm not when i'm not doing podcasts <laughs> this backdrop lifts up and there's a little playhouse back True. here and like stuffed toys and crayons and coloring and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, it's taking away her playtime, daddy. And, and you're not the casting director, daddy. And she just gives me attitude. So <laughs> she's not, but you know, Sylvie was a great agent and she did it. And she did was very like, you're going to miss this. You're born for this. This is what you want to do. Uh, but everybody else was like, Oh, thank God, Tyler, you need to go get a real job. And the irony is I went to school, I went back to school, I took all my acting money, I went back to school, got an engineering discipline, started my own business. And it wasn't until about two to three years ago, and maybe more like four or five now, four or five years ago, where I earned more than I had acting. You know, and this is working in a professional environment, uh, doing, you know, uh, working as a photogrammetrist and cartographer and like doing real work (laughs) (laughs) and then moving into safety consulting and doing real work. And, uh, and and I still, it wasn't until recently where I was like, Hey, look, yeah, I'm making what I used to now, you know, in 2003. (laughs) So what was the prompt to go back to school and start your own business? Well, when you've essentially been self-employed since you were six years old, it's really hard to listen to other people tell you what to do. Um, and I hated having other people tell me what to do. <laughs> for a brief period of time, I, I worked for 
um, the largest airline here in Canada. I, it was the longest job that I've actually held where I wasn't self-employed. I, I worked for the airline for about three and a half years, loved it, loved it for the, um, the flights and the atmosphere. I love airports, love airports, love planes. I just, I love aviation period, working in and around it. It's actually why I got into photogrammetry, which is a fancy way of saying uh, making maps out of pictures, because I got to, with my um, uh, business, have a fleet of three small planes, little tiny Cessnas. Um, but, you know, you got to fly at 10, 12,000 feet and take pictures of the ground and stitch those photos together. It was it was a good job. I really enjoyed that. But um, what made me go back to school was literally everybody told me that I had to, right? Like, well, now, now you've had your fun. You've, you've played, you know, you, you had your experiment, Tyler, and now it's time to get a real job. And part of getting a real job is you have to have an education. And so you go back to school and you get the education. And when I was looking at what I could do at school, I was, there was very few things that interested me. Um, but I had worked for my uncle, who was also a photogrammetrist and cartographer. My other uncle is a cartographer. I understood geomatics and um, map making and earth study. And I was literally, it was between uh, three programs. I threw a dart, it landed on geomatics. And I was like, well, I can make, I can do that. Like if I'm going to have to take two years of my life and dedicate it to not working and going to school, I might as well do something that I can, that I know I can excel at. And that was one area that I knew I was going to do well at. And so that's why I chose that. And, uh, but then I, I, I also knew from at that point working, uh, that I needed, I needed something that I could do on my own as well. And I found some really good mentorship and partnership, especially having my uncle who could, who could guide me having run his own mapping firm out of Vancouver for years and years and years and years, very successful, internationally known. Um, I, that was just, that was, that was what I was going to do. Mm -hmm. uh, because yeah, I couldn't, I, I just, I can't have other people tell me what to do. Nobody would, <laughs> and they can't put up with me either. Like it's a two way street, right? right? Like I am not, <laughs> I am not an easy employee. Cause I'm like, what do you mean? I got to be in at eight. The world doesn't start till 1030. Right. <laughs> So 1030, that's lunch. 1030 <laughs> isn't even breakfast. One o'clock <laughs> is breakfast. Oh, uh, when I'm not when I'm not doing the podcast, I, I'm up at 5 a.m. Monday through Friday for my nine to five. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I know fun. so many people who I tried doing it, but here's the thing. I have since six years old worked in the evenings. Work for me starts around five o'clock. Like even when I was working for my uncle, I did the graveyard shift. I worked eleven till seven. When I worked for the airlines, I worked the graveyard shift. Uh, I think it was 10 to 6. I have always, 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 always for 36 years <laughs> functioned in the middle of the night. And it's really hard for your body to make that adjustment. I know yeah. the people who work at, at 5 in the morning. I know, you know, there's the 5 a.m. club, the 4 a.m. club. I'm, I'm all about it. But I think you need to find when your body works at optimal and adopt your life around that. It's why I, I'm a public speaker now, because I get and even like when I'm doing a keynote um, at the beginning of May. 
and and the reason I I love doing keynotes is because you're always at the end of the day. <laughs> so like my my talk uh, for this particular conference uh, starts at two thirty, and that's a little early for me. I'm like, mm, I'll do it. I'll do it, but there better be a lot of tea backstage for me. Right. <laughs> yeah. So how did you jump into the the keynote speaking? Or what came first, keynote or the author? A keynote came first. Um, the author came as a result of the fact that I was doing more and more speaking engagements. And um, when you reach a certain level within the industry, there's kind of an expectation from uh, promoters and event organizers that you have some form of credential. And I'm not a doctorate. You know, uh, the most I've gotten out of an education is a diploma. Mind you, I have two diplomas, <laughs> but they're they're not even degrees, right? Two two-year um, fields of study and vastly diverse too. So I have the geomatics diploma and then I have a safety diploma, safety engineering. <laughs> uh, both of them in engineering, theoretically engineering disciplines, but they're not a full degree. So I'm not an engineer, they're engineering disciplines. Um, and so I don't have the credentials behind me. So the next best thing is published author because mm -hmm. then you're published, right? Because that, right, as a doctorate or even as a master's, you're published and they want you to be published. They need to have works that they can review and then peer review and all. So um, I, my agent had and basically told me that I had to write a book. Um, and I didn't actually even write my book. My book, I spoke. That was the great thing about it. I, we, I've been doing these keynote presentations around public speaking for probably five years before the book came out. And so we had literally hundreds of hours of video of me delivering this content. So we transcribed it. Uh, Ghostwriter compiled it based on my um, training agenda. Uh, so we basically just followed the, what I would normally deliver in a two and a half day training seminar in 10 chapters and, um, tried to make sense of my nonsensical diversions <laughs> and get rid of those things. I had a great ghostwriter, by the way, Brian Wright, if anybody is interested and, uh, Alyssa Blondin, who, uh, did the second edition, uh, both of them have done an amazing job of making me sound like me because <laughs> it's weird. Cause when I type, I don't sound like how I talk. Right. I type how I think in my head, which is a considerably more articulate and refined. <laughs> and so I come across very educated in my typed word. Um, but the book uh, is is truly, it is actually my voice because it's all transcribed. And they did a, a wonderful job of making it uh, cohesive. So how did the keynote speaking come about? Uh, you know, if you're going from, being, you know, cartography to, to keynote speaking, yeah. I mean, that's a hell of a leap. Uh, sort of, kind of, but isn't. So again, when I, I've been performing since six, so I've been on stage public speaking in some form since six. And when I went back to school, I, you know, when you can public speak, you're instantly looked at as a leader, just because you can articulate your thoughts. I am, I am in no way a leader of man, <laughs> but people will listen to me because I look good and sound good. And it's it's shameful, really, the power that that wields. Um, and I will be the first to acknowledge that I try my best to use it for good instead of evil. But like I was the the president of the my the geomatic society going through school. And then 
really weirdly. So after I, I was, as president, invited to be on the advisory committee for the program as a student capacity, which was great. And so I got to do it. But then when I graduated, they're like, do you want to stick around and still be on the advisory board? And I was like, sure, why not? Because <laughs> at the time, I had my own company. So they were like, you know, president of InView Solutions. And you're like, mm-hmm, uh-huh, that's me. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but then the company collapsed. But before the company collapsed, because I was articulate and could state things and, and had reasoned argument and was comfortable speaking up, they're like, so do you want to be president of the advisory board? <laughs> I was like, what? And nobody else wanted to do it because it's a volunteer position. So they're like, sure, you can be the president. And so I found myself in this capacity speaking a lot at a lot of functions around a lot of educated people because it's post-secondary education. You get a lot of people who come in who are influential, who matter. I was the valedictorian of my graduating class in 2010. And so, and from that, a lot of people asked me to give my valedictorian speech, actually. The, the, one of the first public speaking jobs I had was um, the director of Theater Calgary saw my valedictorian speech, recognized me and asked if I would come and re-deliver it at, for the corporate side of Theatre Calgary. I was like, sure, why not? Um, a couple of the other executives, the guy who was getting his honorary degree uh, bestowed upon him and was the keynote presenter at the graduation, loved my speech and asked me to come and speak at his organization. And, you know, so I got to speak at a, a, a very large oil and gas firm. So just things like that, they, it, these, the opportunities presented themselves after my business collapsed, my uh, best friend and best man at my wedding, who is a significantly better business person than I am. <laughs> Uh, has his own electrical firm, and he needed a safety manager. And because I'd had all the safety training from trying to run my business, because the primary client was the government, and so they make you have safety programs in place. So I had to get a whole bunch of safety training. He was like, you got all these, these courses, you know, if you take these three other courses, you will, you get your national construction safety officer designation. I was like, No, I didn't realize that. But sure, let's do that. So he paid for me to um, get my designation. And then I worked for him for a year as his safety manager while he did this big oil and gas contract, this big new build construction thing. And it was, uh, you know, um, it wasn't quite, it was multi, multi um, million dollar, like um, nine figure construction project. So, it's and so there was a, a, yeah, it wasn't, yeah, it was, <laughs> and I think the whole project start to finish was two and a half years. And I came in midway through construction. Um, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of moving parts and a lot of players from a lot of large construction companies, oil and gas companies, a lot of different um, players that were on that site. And part of that is you have very prominent people coming through the site doing inspections and looking at the work and and seeing what the progress is and doing progress and completion reports. And as a, you know, head of safety for my company, it was my job to make the guys look good when these bigwigs were on site. And there was this quarterly inspection that was taking place. And they had basically every president of every company involved in this corporation. There was like 40 suits coming through, big titles, big education, big salaries, moving their way through this building. 
And I was in charge of a whole bunch of electricians who just did not want to listen to the actor boy who had an IMDb page, tell them how to do their job. <laughs> and they, there was these guys, they were working at height. And because it's an international oil and gas project, we actually follow OSHA rules. So mm -hmm. US rules. And so you have to be tied off at six feet if you're working at height. And these guys were well above six feet and definitely not tied off, not even wearing harnesses, just being idiots. And I was yelling at them. I'm, I was like, they were like, you don't, you've never even pulled wire, man. You don't even know what you're talking about. And I was like, I used to jump out of six story windows in Vancouver for a living. And that was safer than what you're doing right now. And to this day, it is actually the safest job that I ever had was doing a high fall stunt in Vancouver in the early 2000s. Six, four, six story high fall into um, cardboard boxes. Safest job I've ever had. <laughs> Biggest payday too. It was good. I liked it. Um, but so I'm yelling at these guys and the executives are doing their tour and the building echoed and they heard. <laughs> and uh, one of them pulled me aside and he was like, is that true? I said, was what true? He said, did you used to jump out of windows? I was like, yeah, I, was, I, I did briefly some stunts in Vancouver. I'm more of an actor, but I, I did do some stunts. I'm no stunt man by any stretch of the imagination. I worked with some really competent stunt professionals who made me look good for this one specific thing where I was the perfect double. And, uh, and he's like, that's, have, could you, could you, you know, tell us more about that in tomorrow's safety meeting? Sure. Why not? <laughs> so I led the safety meeting that day, two other executives that were there were like, that was, that was fascinating. Is that really true? I'm like, yes, it's really true. And they're like, would you come and give that as a keynote address? And I went, sure. And they're like, how much do you charge for it? And I went charge for it. Cause everything else that I'd done at that point was just, you know, somebody asked, will you come and say that thing? And I was like, sure, why not? I'll say that thing. And so just off the top of my head, cause I had no idea. I didn't even really understand what a keynote was at that point. I just, I basically said my month's salary just as a, just as a joke. Right. And I was like, yeah, I know it'd be like this much. And he said, okay, uh, here's my card. Just get in touch with my EA and they'll arrange everything. Do you, uh, do you take your payment up front or do you wait until the, until after <laughs> he didn't even blink. <laughs> and I'm talking five figures for one talk, 45 minutes. And I went, Oh snap, this is a thing. I could do this. And at that point, then I, then the wheels started turning and I was like, I don't like being three weeks away from my wife. We were newly married at the time. You know, it sucked. The living conditions were atrocious up on camp. Like they put you in these little tiny four by eight, like prison is better than work camps <laughs> and, and oil and gas. And I, you know, you, your and your freedoms are often about as limited uh, when you're up there, cause you can't go anywhere. Can't do anything. You eat the food. When they say you eat the food, you go to where you're going. When they say you're going, you sleep when they say they sleep. Like it, it's, it's limiting. And I was like, why am I doing this thing when I can make a month's worth of oil and gas salary too? Like, it wasn't like I was making small amount of money, oil and gas salary. I can make a month's worth of salary in 45 minutes. Let's do this thing. And at that point I was, I was fully committed to making, uh, being a public speaker my full-time vocation because it got to be the blend of everything. It was mm -hmm. the best of every world. I got to use my professional credentials. 
I got to use my performance skills, which I'm never going to lose because it's been ingrained in my DNA since I was born and I've been taking advantage of it for 36 years now. I got to, I got to, but instead of saying other people's words, I got to say my own words. Oh, that's freeing. And as you and every one of your listeners right now, Gordon, on, you know, rules of the arena can tell I don't shut up. So I love using my own words. It's my favorite thing to do. Um, so yeah, it, it that's, that's really how it happened. And then a lot of these executives would ask me, how do you do that? Because they would see their employees eyes light up when I would go, and then they would go and give their presentations and people would glaze over like they just gotten a lobotomy. And, you know, they would ask, how do you do it? I was like, it's pretty easy. And so I ended up getting a couple of um, private coaching clients, corporate um, guys, who again, paid me a ridiculous amount of money to just learn how to tell a story better, which to this day blows my mind. <laughs> Every time I'm working with CEOs, like, you know, I've worked with guys who make seven figures, eight figures, and I go... Yeah, especially the eight-figure ones. I'm like, why are you listening to me? <laughs> like, you run an empire, and you want me to make your words sound pretty? <laughs> okay, here you go. And it's just been—I I mean, that's that's just a blessing, and that, and it's a two-way gift too, because it's not—it's not just the money. The money is nice because it pays for me and my wife to go to some pretty cool places, you know. Um, my buddy was getting married in Thailand and he asked me to be in the wedding party and we didn't even blink. We just went, uh, his sister and my best friend, uh, lives in, um, Dubai and, you know, my wife and I got to go there for three weeks for her, both of their birthdays. They were born a week apart. Exactly. And, um, I got to go, uh, and, and celebrate both of their birthdays in Dubai. We got to go skiing in Dubai, right? Ski Dubai, which by the way is is is, is horrible skiing. For anybody who actually skis, <laughs> it's not good. But it's the it's the novelty of saying that you're skiing in a desert, which is cool. I also got to try dune surfing. That mm -hmm. sucks. Don't do that. That that is that's awful. That's not a thing. Don't do it. It's not like skiing. It's not what they make it look like. So you know that is always nice. But what is more I guess, beneficial for me where I get the most satisfaction is seeing somebody who has made it that far in the world, who still has this limitation, who still struggles with this thing and helping them overcome that. And then seeing how much that improves their whole organization because they're better able to communicate their vision, their hopes for their company, what their thoughts are, they just do it better. And so now you don't have an audience of glazed over lobotomized zombies. You have truly engaged active participants in your vision. And that's when you have incredible organizations, incredible culture. And to be able to have a small influence on that, that makes my soul sing. That makes me happier than anything else on the planet. And I've noticed in, so I've been with my company for the largest in our industry. I've been eight years now, uh, eight years today. Um, and Happy anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> but I've even noticed in the last three to four years, the, the culture has seemed to pivot and taken a different turn for the better. Mm -hmm. And we, like you're saying, uh, the ability just to communicate that down. And I, albeit we only see you know the real big wigs once a year. 
will happen for the last two years because of COVID. Um, but with my immediate bosses I report to, seeing them change and how the company is changing, it, it seems to be as a whole, like you're saying, you know, changing the culture. So we're not just sitting there as some guy reads off the PL report for the shareholders meeting. It's like, oh, this is exciting. Like, uh, is the beer open yet? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, no, and that, and that's, that's really, um, why I do what I do. Cause it's just, it's, it's fr- whether it's from a safety standpoint, right? Because again, these keynotes started as safety presentations and have just moved into general communication strategies. It's, it's amazing how it's morphed and evolved over the last five, six years. But to see true organizational change that is led from the top in an effective manner and to hear stories like that where like, no, you know, I, where it's palpable that the that the winds have shifted and that the corporate culture is changing and for the better that that's a reward you know because that's i i like to when everybody asks me what i do besides being a lover of fine beaches and an enjoyer of <laughs> chocolate um i love to tell people that i'm the pebble right i'm i'm small i'm just a tiny tiny catalyst to a much larger ripple and i love being that and i and the nice thing about being a pebble is i on my own i'm just sitting here it takes somebody else picking me up and throwing me into the lake to get that ripple effect and usually that's a client picking me up asking for my help and then just doing the little lob toss and then i get to help with the, those ripples going out and i i love that I love being able to, especially having spent 20 plus years in front of the camera, in a public eye, to be able to have impact now behind the scenes and still be able to every once in a while pop my face out and and talk to an audience and, and have that live feedback and then go back behind the scenes is... Um, it's just fun. I just, I couldn't, I can't imagine doing anything else at this point in my life. And so with your, your keynotes, you know, teaching communication, I mean, are you strictly for, you know, talking to these big corporate companies and their leadership and helping them change that around? Or are you working smaller organizations or, you know, schools, for example, or anything like that? Oh yeah. Uh, Not so much schools, although I do, uh, volunteer my time with my daughter's school. One of the reasons we picked it is because it has a public speaking program and they start them at six years old. Mm-hmm. So first grade, they're learning how to public speak, which is a blessing and a curse because bless my daughter, her vocabulary is incredible and her <laughs> reasoning skills are through the roof. The problem is, is she pushes back on goddamn everything <laughs> and in a good argument too. It's like sometimes it's really hard to argue with her because it's very rational. And you're like, listen, you need to eat your broccoli because I said so. <laughs> No argument. Um, I've literally had that argument with her, and she's like, "You know, I can get more calcium from these sources." And I'm like, "How do you know that? You're six. You're in the first grade." Well, we look it up, and I can't even remember what the program is. This the school has a special, like encyclopedia thing, and the kids get to look up whatever they want. And it's just, it's gross how educated my my daughter is. And. So the book you mentioned, you know, you were kind of required to to add to the credential. Mm-hmm. 
and it's just from your keynote speaking. So if somebody just reads the book, do they, can they then just forego going to one of your keynote speakings or, I mean, has it, have you changed oh, yeah. or involved things around? Well, yeah. And I realize that at this point, I didn't fully answer your question. I work with um, organizations of all size. Um, a lot of the ones that I'm working with currently are small charities. One of my favorite charities that I've gotten to work with is um, called Made by Mama. And it's a local charity here in Calgary that helps um, primarily mothers in need for whatever that need is, whether they're trying to escape domestic abuse, whether they are um, have just fallen on hard times, uh, maybe a, a recent widower. Um, or are have experienced child loss and are like whatever whatever the need is that's the thing about them they're not niched down they're there to help mothers and as somebody who grew up with uh, a mother who was a widower and who needed the support of an entire community that charity speaks volumes to me but they were struggling with um, a getting their message out effectively, and B with uh, with their two main charity events, and they needed an MC. So I've MC'd their events and worked with their with their director to help get them better prepared to get their message out. And and now they've grown like they're 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 in just massive expansion and growth. And I've worked with other charities, um, early pregnancy and infancy loss, uh, literacy for life a lot of these different charities. So I just, I love working with all these organizations, but I also do my own training seminars. So like uh, in April, we're putting on a two and a half day training seminar in Las Vegas. And we limit the capacity to 300 attendees because we want to make sure that, although I can't work one-on-one with a group that size, um, we can still get a lot of individualized attention to smaller groups, Mm -hmm. you know, so we can have um, groups of 100 and then groups of 50 and then groups of 20 and really support them uh, through this two and a half days of exploring how to get over stage fright, how to get their messaging uh, dialed in, how to tell an effective story, how to use their personal story, how to properly prepare for a presentation because most people are doing it incredibly wrong. They're, they're, what they think they need to do is sit and memorize three and a half, four, five, six pages of micro text and 500 words per page and just commit that to memory somehow. And it's, <laughs> it, it is the worst thing they can do. So we show them what you should be doing and why that rote memorization is both not productive for you, but why it's, it's creating a complete disconnect with your audience and why you're not engaging with them and the tricks so that you are engaged with your audience. Um, and it makes it a lot more affordable. So instead of paying me as a private coach, you can come in and still get access to me, but for a, a, a much more reasonable price. And we, we put them on all over the, you know, North America, we do it all over the world, actually. But um, this one that's coming up um, is going to be the first one we've done since 2019 for obvious reasons we're doing it in vegas because nothing's going to shut down vegas and uh we had two choices i when the promoter came to talk to me he's like where do you want to do it do you want to do it in vegas or do you want to do it in orlando and i said vegas because as much as vegas is open and everything flies to it i just don't know that i could trust florida (laughs) yeah i was actually supposed to be in getting back from orlando yesterday and the the work meeting got canceled 
Crying yeah. shame. Darn. <laughs> well, yeah. So uh, the nice thing is everything flies to Vegas and it just, it seemed the most central and obvious place to put it on and it's Vegas. So we do our two and a half days. So it's basically three days, right? Have people come in midweek, um, show up for the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We let them go Friday a little bit early and then they 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 can do whatever they want at that point. You want to stay the weekend in Vegas, you can stay the weekend in Vegas. It makes it at least a decent destination because if we were to do it in Orlando, I don't know how many people really want to go to Epcot right now or who wants to go to Disney World. Um, so maybe that's a, a thing, but most of the corporate executives that are going to be coming to my seminar, Disney's not the big draw. Right. <laughs> Being able to go, you know, visit the MGM Grand, eh, let's do that. So in to, speaking of the book, the the title that like i said that grabbed my attention mm. first and foremost the, the power to speak naked <laughs> yeah gotta love it <laughs> i feel like I, it sounds like an adage on the old line of imagine your audience naked you know the old oh, the cliche yeah. line of advice the yeah. worst advice by the way ever <laughs> that you could ever give anybody who wants to get into public speaking or just needs to give a presentation worst Worst advice ever is to picture your audience in their underwear or naked. And yes, it is. It's a direct poke at that. Yeah. So so where did you come up with the title? Uh, I didn't. It was a brainstorming session with my team. Because <laughs> like I said, I like to be the stupidest person in the room. Um, and so I surround myself with very, very smart, very, very talented people on a regular basis. Um, and I, I was actually speaking at a conference. I'd been invited to uh, give a small presentation and um, I, I'd worked very closely with these promoters. I was involved with, um, with them for a year or so. And after everybody had gone, um, my ghostwriter, Alyssa was there, uh, their promotions team who I had worked with uh, regularly, the keynote uh, presenter and the, um, the, organizer of the event was there and i had a deadline for my publisher that was like i think this was a saturday and my deadline was that that monday um because i'd given them the manuscript like we had everything that was in and i didn't have a title that i liked um when i was originally doing this um this program uh what did we call it oh leadership Oh, something. What was it? Leadership, not leadership for safety excellence. That was a different program. I can't, I can't even remember what we called it right now, but it wasn't, you know, it was like pres presentations for leaders or something like that. And it just, we were going to title the book that and it just, right. It just doesn't land. And so I was brainstorming. I was like, I need, I need a title that that pops because one of the first things they teach you in your or they should anyways what you know my publisher was really good um and she asked what do you want the book to do for you like never mind how you want to serve your audience and all the noble stuff like what do you want the book to do and for me i wanted publicity all i wanted was to get media appearances and be able to get on podcasts and radio and tv and be able to do media appearances. That's what I wanted. And she's like, well, you're going to need to have a catchy title. And I'm like, I know. And so what's, what are we going to call this thing? And so I was brainstorming with, with my team and they had asked, 
you know, uh, I think it started with, well, this is a book on advice, right? And it's, it's advice around public speaking. And thirty-five at that point, it was 30 years of my combined knowledge uh, of public speaking and, and just helping people out. And they're like, okay, well, um, you know, and so I asked my team, I said, what's some of the advice that you've gotten? And instantly, Alyssa had said, um, well, you picture your audience naked. And I did the same thing that I just did with you. I'm like, that is the worst advice. And I went on a tirade, very similar to what you and I just experienced. And at the end of it, I said, I would rather give somebody the power to speak naked on stage than for them to picture the audience naked. And as soon as I said it, everybody kind of went, oh, hey, that's an idea. And then as we explored what it meant, like what were, what, how, why did that resonate with me? Well, on the surface, legitimately, I wish that I could give everybody so much confidence in what they were saying, so much self-confidence and, and strength in themselves and their messaging and who they are at their core, that they could go on stage like it was a performance of hair wearing the emperor's new clothes and just <laughs> give their message. Because that is true mastery if they can do it. On the other side of it, I want their message to be so compelling and so engaging that the audience wouldn't even notice what they were wearing because it wouldn't even matter because they were completely, totally captivated by their words and how they were delivering it. And then the next level to it is because I want your words to be that engaging, I want you to be able to give a raw, naked presentation. And by that, I mean strip away all the fluff. No PowerPoint, no audio video. We have been speaking as a species. We have been using public speaking to communicate ideas to us for eons. And I promise you, Plato and Aristotle did not have PowerPoint. <laughs> the bard didn't have laser lights and microphones. We don't need these things. So I want you to be able to give a, just a naked presentation, raw, stripped away of all of the fluff. You don't need the power. In fact, PowerPoint is probably one of the reasons why your audience is glazing over because it's detracting from your message. It's not supporting your message. And that really obviously resonated with me, as you can see. And then at its very core, one of my core tenets, one of my three pillars of all of my training sessions is that the thing you're afraid to say is probably what your audience needs to hear. And that means being raw and real with them and exposing the raw naked truth. Not glossing over, not trying to pretend that it's something else, not faking it till you make it. Oh my God, fake it till you make it is the worst thing you could do. <laughs> Seriously, hands down. I know that there are people who swear by it. I swear against it. You know, if you want to come across authentic, authenticity is synonymous with self-awareness. If you're not aware of who you are and what your limitations are and what your strengths are and play to your strengths and then improve your, your areas of improvement, you are never going to get anywhere. Yeah, you can push your boundaries and challenge yourself to do things outside of your comfort zone. And that's going to cause growth. And that's great. But you don't teach about that. Right? One of the best advices I ever got from a fellow speaker was you speak from your scars, not from your wounds. Wounds are still healing. You don't know that stuff. Scars, you've learned the lesson and you can impart that. And I will always keep that. So at the core messaging here, I want people to be able to be real, be authentic, and speak the raw, naked truth to their audience. And I want to be very clear. I'm not asking you to expose your deepest, darkest secrets. You know, I don't need to know where the body's buried. 
I don't even need to know that you're a murderer. But maybe be honest with some rage issues you have and, you know, that you're, you don't value human life as much as everyone else. That's okay, right? <laughs> like that's, that's the bit that we need to know because that's what makes that story more engaging, more compelling, that, that allows us to find sympathy and empathy with what you're trying to say. So it would, would be fair to say that if somebody reads the book, it's a decent, uh, for lack of a better term, homework, if you will, before yep. they're attending your seminar. Yeah, it's a great introduction to me because you'll either love me or hate me because what you get in the book is what you get in the seminar. You just, what you lack, what you don't get in the book is a lot of the context, more specifically the subcontext to to things where I have a better uh, ability to expand on and explain things. Because like I said, they, they've, my editors and ghostwriters did an incredible job of compressing two and a half days into 10 chapters. But I, I think at the back of the book, I think it has a read time. Read time, 114 minutes. It's not even 120, which would be two hours. So they've compressed what is about a 30-hour seminar into a two-hour read. And most of that was accomplished by taking away the context. I can give you, this will give you the raw tools, but it's, it's like giving somebody a hammer and a nail and then saying, build the building. Well, if you don't know how it works, you're not, or that you need other materials, you'll never accomplish the task. Mm -hmm. So although it's a great introduction, um, you will get my voice. So you'll know what I'm like, like, there's no hiding it. You'll either you'll be like, man, this I like this guy. This is this is my jam. I could I, I can hang with this guy. He's my peeps. Or you'll be like, who is this dude? And why is he so scattered? <laughs> one of the two, one of the two, you'll either love me or you hate me, but you know what you're getting in the book. And it, it is a really good introduction. And the other thing that they can do, if they want to know, uh, if the book is, is, you know, a little steep, a little, little pricey investment, 17 bucks, Gordon, 17 bucks, hard earned cash. You know, people want to know how they buy my book. I always tell them to do it in bulk. So if you're not prepared to do that and you, you want to be a little tight with the wallet at first, I have a free Facebook group called endless stages and anybody is more than welcome to come in there. And I go live every Tuesday. Uh, we have a thing called Tyler's Tuesday training and Tyler's Tuesday tips. I come in and I talk for 20 minutes. It's, it's real easy to digest. Uh, it's one o'clock my time, which is noon Pacific and three Eastern. So it's basically people can schedule their lunch around it. It's right in the middle of the day. It's only 20 minutes. We do not go over the 20 minutes because I honor people's times. My time is uh, busy. And I will give uh, a message usually informed by the group. We have a very active, very engaged group, which I appreciate more than I could ever possibly tell you. And they'll ask questions. How do I do this? What do I do this? And I love it because we get to celebrate people's accomplishments. Like one of our uh, people in the group this week just published her book. Because I said, if you want to be a professional speaker, same thing for me, you want to go to the next level, you got to have the book. When you don't have the book, promoters go, who are you? And they don't pay you the big bucks. You want to make the big bucks, you got to have the book. And uh, Michelle in our group wants the big bucks. And she needs to set herself up as an authority. So she published her book this week. And we're, we're celebrating that success. We had a couple other people who got in with the Chamber of Commerce and, and have booked some uh, speaking engagements there. Some other people who've gotten on some podcasts to get their message out. Um, you know, another lady is running her own seminar, uh, one of my private coaching clients. And so we're celebrating her success. So it's just, it's a really 
great, really engaged, really supportive group, and it's free. So if 17 bucks is steep, come and join me for free. And then every couple of weeks in my group, I'm going to pitch you my book. That's just how it works. <laughs> yeah, I was just curious. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the the social media side of the house. You know, talking about you know humans have been using public you know public communication and speaking for centuries. Now here we are to the point where you're just looking at your phone all day. I mean, does that has that forced you or the the public speaking industry to kind of evolve and shift or are we it's been around now i think we're past you know the honeymoon phase of social media can we dial it back to maybe a little a hybrid of what it was and what it is well i don't know i think the genie's out of the bottle with that one um i really foresee society ending up kind of like that uh arc in wally <laughs> I, like i really honestly see us going that way like i even you know my daughter, the biggest threat that I can give her, if I need her to be in line right now, I'm going to take away your electronics. And the difficulty in that threat is the sheer volume of access to media that she has. If I have to take away her electronics, I got to lose the the laptop. She can't, I got to unplug the TV because the TV's smart. It's connected to the internet. So you can't even like block it. And you can't even put parental controls on it because it blocks everything else that you need to do with the TV. So like I literally I physically need to unplug the TV, hide the laptop, take her she has a cell phone. It's not active on a network, but she has my wife's old iPhone so that she can play handheld games on the bus and she has her tablet that she can do plus she has her school computer. Like the just a sheer volume of electronics and access to different types of media that she has and where she gets on and how she finds this stuff. I'm like, what is that even? And our children are exposed to this earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier. Our lives are getting busier and busier and busier and busier. I just don't see it dialing back as much as I would like it to. Yes, the industry has changed and it's evolving as all of these platforms are evolving because it's how they're finding people. And now people are tuning into the fact that there's algorithms and Facebook is mining your data and, you know, and Google is, is omnipresent in everything and yes. just me saying something like i bet you my phone turned on the second i mentioned <laughs> google's name and it wants to know what i'm interested in and you know like i i i was on a podcast this afternoon and it was using um river fm and Streamyard. i think no it was just it was river fm and it gives a screen capture at the end and usually I'm animated, I'm talking all the time. So my screen captures always look like I'm having a seizure. Um, but this one was a really good one. The host and I were both smiling and I was like, hey, that's a really good picture. And I want to promote people. So like when your episode comes out, Gordon, I'm going to be screaming that rules of the arena is out. And this is the thing and I'm going to share and I'm going to like, I'm going to put it out through all my networks. And this was a really good opportunity for me because I don't often get to pre-promote a thing. And this was just great. I was like, oh, I did this really cool episode. And it was something different than what I normally talk about. It's specialized for lawyers. So I was like, this is a great opportunity to really get out and promote a host and do some good stuff. So I put the thing, what do you think has showed up in my Facebook feed for the last three hours? <laughs> Did you know you can use River FM for podcasting? Yes. Are you a podcaster? Do you want to do this? All this targeting ad because I put it out on social media. So no, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's going to get worse. 
Um, yes, the industry has, has adopted to it. It's where we're finding most of our clients. It's how I get the word out on all my stuff. I'm on all of the platforms, right? I've, we've got the Instagram and we've got the Facebook and we've got the TikTok and we've got um, the LinkedIn and all of them are different aspects of people who follow me and they're different demographics. So if we're doing a thing for the lawyers, I'm putting that out on LinkedIn. If we're doing a thing for our generation, putting it on Facebook. If I'm doing it for my wife's generation and younger, I'm putting that on Instagram. If I need to, for whatever reason, get the attention of my daughter, that's a TikTok or YouTube for sure. <laughs> you know, um, all of these different platforms. And that's the thing. They're so segmented and there's, they're so different. The industry has gotten wise to it. People have gotten wise to the fact that we're advertising to them that way. It's just, it's a bizarre time. And what's worse for me, a lot of the industry was able to pivot and go virtual over the last 24 months. I can't. I could, but it would be a complete disservice to my clients and the people who pay me good money to learn my material. Because there is something about being in a live audience to learn how to communicate to a live audience. Mm -hmm. Because of my training, I am able to communicate more effectively through a digital device. But it's only because I have 36 years a film industry background where I understand what the camera does and how it reads and why I need to emote to it and how to emote to it. The majority of people, even in my seminars, I can't teach it. We cover it in my five-day workshop, but in my two-and-a-half-day seminar, this is there's not enough time to get to this medium and how to do it effectively. And so for me, for my training, I need this to be live, and, and that's one of the reasons why we've had a hiatus since 2019 mm -hmm. um, because I need to see you. I need to feel your presence. I need to know what you are doing on stage and see the all of you um, up in front of other people so that you can feed off of your nervous energy or so that you can do whatever it is. I need to see what your actual reaction to a room of 200, 300 people is so that I can coach you better. And if I can't do that, I, I can't serve you. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's, you know, for most everybody else, yes, they've been able to adapt for me. I have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the border to open to the point where now I'm just, I don't care. It's another reason why I picked Vegas because if Canada won't let me back in, there are worse places that I can be. Right. And Phoenix is just down the way. <laughs> I have a, a couple of friends who have houses there. So I, if I, worst case scenario, I pop from uh, Vegas down to Arizona and I hang out with some people in, in Phoenix or Scottsdale and just hang out there. Yeah, you could be stuck. I'm the stones throw through from Minneapolis and St. Paul, and you could be stuck here. And we've been sub-zero temperatures for the last week or so. <laughs> Loves me the Twin Cities. Yeah, I will actually. I might. I might be coming to Minnesota with with this training thing. I kind of want to. You guys get skipped a lot. Yeah, and yet you're the, you know, the heartbeat of America. You have so many great talent. Great music comes out from you guys. Like you, oh, you know, and. I, I, the nice thing is, is my training programs are specifically limited. So although it's not the world's greatest destination, you know, it's, it's getting better. It's getting better. <laughs> At least it's not Cleveland. Yeah, true. Very true. <laughs> Could be worse. Could be Delaware. I have a great story about Cleveland off here, but, <laughs> <laughs> but so I mean, things are kind of maybe looking normal. At least there seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Not sure if it's a if it's candlelight or the actual end. But what's next and when for you? I mean, you got Vegas coming up. I mean, plans for maybe doing a second book or 
Uh, yeah. So the revised edition of the book is coming out um, next year. Um, I'm in the midst of recording and releasing the audio book of this version. Um, and that should be out. I think I, I'm, we're targeting September for that. So I'm hoping that happens uh, on time. Anyway, it's going to happen. I just, I hope it happens on time because one of my goals for that is to get in for award season. I would love, love, love to grease enough wheels and shake enough hands and talk to the right people that, cause I know, I know the music industry cause I grew up in it um, that I can get nominated for a Grammy because the book is never going to win a Pulitzer. It's never going to win some of the other ones. Like it's not going to get a Mark Twain award. It's not, it's not the world's greatest written tomb, but I'm an animated folk. I know how to perform my own words well. And if I record the audio, the, the Grammys have a category for best spoken word. I have no illusion that I will win it. But if um, Stephen Colbert can have two Grammys for spoken word, and one of them is for I am a pole and so can you, and he gets to put that gold sticker on there, I want the gold sticker on my book. I want to say <laughs> Grammy nominated number one best-selling book, The Power to Speak Naked. And so that I can say that I am a Grammy nominated author. I think that would be so cool. I don't know that it'll happen, but if I get the audio book released in September, I'll be in the right time period for the award ceremonies. And uh, I just think that would be, that would be fun. So that's one of the goals. We're doing the event in April in Vegas. I will be speaking in Phoenix in May. Again, very strategically designed so that if I get stuck at the border, I already have a place that I'm going to. I'll just get there a little bit earlier. And so mid-May, uh, we're speaking in Phoenix. At the And then a week later, I'll be speaking in Dallas. That is a big event with multiple speakers. So some really cool people will be there. Um, I think Phil Town will be there. I think... Maybe Molly Bloom is going to be there. Uh, some of the bigger names in self-development will be there. Um, so that'll be that'll be a real fun event. And I get to speak from the stage. And then we'll be selling the program from that stage. And we're anticipating six to 9,000 attendees at each one of those events. So if I even pick up 5% of the room, well, I can only pick up 5% of the room because we're capped at 300. Um, that'd be amazing to do. And then we'll come back to Phoenix and Dallas. Phoenix in June, Dallas probably like September and put on the training events, the same one that we're doing in Vegas. And then uh, we'll see where it goes from there. And then... Yeah, that's that's kind of what's circled on my calendar right now. Uh, going forward, um, there's a the same group that's putting on the events in well, my promoter that's doing my event and puts on the big events in Dallas and and Phoenix will be doing another one in uh, Atlanta at some point coming up in the next couple of months, and he has a um, a VIP like super high-end event that he's putting on for a week in Mexico with all of the big names in self-development. And I'll be helping out with that event. I won't be speaking at that event. I'll be um, supporting it as a, as a staff and volunteer. And that'll be, that'll be spectacular. And hopefully I can take my wife down with that. She's a super busy professional. My wife is 
one of the most talented humans I've ever met in my entire life. She's a project manager for one of the largest um, builders, uh, commercial builders in North America. And she does special projects for them. So all of the really weird, cool, like one-off things um, between, and she doesn't, they're not always big budget ones. So that's like her budgets are usually between about one and $5 million, Mm -hmm. but they're always cool. Like exterior (laughs) renos to like totally transform a building or to like build specialized things like, like high-end restaurants or, um, like community centers that are like, like really cool designs. Um, she gets to pick up stuff like that and she's, she's just a genius at things. I keep trying to poach her for my own company, but I can't afford my own wife. (laughs) You know how much that sucks when it doesn't matter how much money you make, you can't afford to hire your wife, even though you know that she would make your, I keep telling her, I'm like, listen, if I had your genius, we'd be pulling in nine figures a year. And then I could pay you what you're worth. And she's like, no. I'm like, oh, come on, honey. Come on, it could be great. But no, no, she's happy running her commercial projects, building cool buildings and installing monuments and iconic places. So we're talking here. It's the last couple of days of, of January. The episode's going to, as people listen to this, it'll be first week of February. If an event's not sold out, where can they, and they, they're interested in going in, or of course, if they want to find your book, where can they find you? Um, well, they can find me. Easiest way to find me is at my website, seantylerfoley.com. Uh, Sean is spelled the proper Irish way, S-E-A-N-T-Y-L-E-R-F-O-L-E-Y.com and just say Tyler sent you. Um, the... Book can be purchased anywhere. My publisher, Morgan James, is amazing and has has my book in bookstores everywhere. If people aren't comfortable going out and they're enjoying shopping online, I would strongly encourage them to quit giving Jeff Bezos money because he's flying to space in a phallic-shaped rocket. And particularly if you're looking to buy books, which is originally what his site was for. That's all you could buy on Jeff's site was books. But now you can, you know, get whatever you need to deliver to your door by a drone in 24 hours. Um, and so he's got money, so we don't need to support him, but your local bookstores are probably struggling right now. So if anybody wants the convenience of online shopping, but the moral and ethical warmness of supporting your local bookstore, I would strongly encourage your U.S. listeners, this is only good for those in the U.S., but for U.S.-based listeners, to go to bookshop.org. And that will connect you online to your local retailer who will then deliver your book to your door the same way that Jeff would. And they will do it for cheaper than what Jeff can. They may not do it as fast, but they do it cheaper. You can purchase my book for usually about a dollar cheaper on bookshop.org. And you'll support your local bookstore. And a portion of your proceeds will be taken by... Uh, bookshop.org to go into a pooled fund that they use so that local book retailers can apply for funding and grant funding and aid if they're struggling. And that to me is the biggest gift that you can give by shopping through them is you're not only supporting your local bookstore, but you're supporting local book retailers throughout the US who are very likely struggling right now. And I think right now, bookshop.org has has raised just around $16 million to help support support local bookstores. So if it's my book or any other book that you want to get, 
I don't care. But the next time you're thinking you're going to shop for books, don't think about Jeff and his phallic shaped <laughs> rocket. Think bookshop.org and support your local book retailer. And if you're listening to this outside of the continental US, then you know go to Barnes and Noble or wherever chapters Indigo. I don't care who you shop through, um, either online or in stores, you can find my book. Awesome. Well, thank you again for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, it was my joy and my pleasure, Gordon. I'm glad you let me go on as long as I have. <laughs>